Well, it's a privilege to be with you today. We're going to continue a book series that we started many weeks ago through the book of 1 John. And we titled the theme of this book, For His Glory and for Our Benefit. And it's coming out quite naturally when I look into the book of 1 John, how I can easily find something in every passage that glorifies God's great name as he guides us to truth. But that truth that he guides us to always benefits our soul. And I'm so thankful to be reminded of that today. And hopefully today's lesson, which is one of the most straight-shooting messages you'll find in the Word of God, one of those handful of passages that has changed my life, has been part of changing my life, is the one we're going to read today. For his glory, for his, for his benefit is the theme. The t- t- title of today's lesson is going to be called Avoiding a Tragic Pitfall. Avoiding a Tragic Pitfall. If you have your notes, you can follow along that way. If you're not a note-taker, that's okay as well. You can just follow along and listen. But Avoiding a Tragic Pitfall is the lesson today. Before we get there today, what, was, what year was 30 years ago right now? What year was it? Think about it. Do the math. 30 years ago, what year was it? 93. Is everybody sh- sure of that? Get the calculator out. 30 years ago was 1993. Do you guys remember that year? 1993. I was just turning 13. I was a teenager. A fun time, right? 1993. Well, there's a point to this question. We're going to go through 10 things. I'm going to give you 10 items of things that were very valuable in 1993. And I'm going to ask you for your feedback today. And you're going to let me know by looking at these pictures on the screen how much you think these things would have cost today, or not today, in 1993. So I need you to go back in time, all right? Go back in time in your memory, your memory bank. I'm going to show you 10 items, and you're going to let me know how much you think these items would have cost you in 1993. You ready for this? And there is a point to this, of course. Number one is a CD player. Who still has CD players? Yes. Okay, we got it. Wow, more than I thought. What do you think you'd pay for a CD player in 1993? 500. Someone's got expensive taste. Uh, someone said over 100. I think it's probably, I looked it up, it was around 150 to $200 for a, for a decent one. For a CD player. Now let me ask you another question, because I'm going to ask you the same question with all 10 of these. What would you pay for one now? Not, not what do you expect to pay, but what would you actually pay for a CD player? What is it? 30. 30. I think that's fair. fair. $30 for a CD player. But some of you use CD players, and that's, that's good to know. Here's another one. An encyclopedia set. You guys remember these? Kids, take a look at it. This is what the internet was back in 1993. No modems, no dial-up, no, no cables at all. Just open up a book. An encyclopedia set. What do you think the Encyclopedia Britannica would have cost you in 1993 for the whole set? 300, I heard 1,000. Yep. Yep, it's right around 500 actually. 500 is the number that I was able to find online. $500 for the whole set of Encyclopedia Britannica. What would you personally pay for that today? If you found it online or at a garage sale? 50 bucks? Anybody will go a little higher, a little lower? 100? Okay. It's a collector's item, if nothing else, right? Encyclopedia Britannica. That was the internet back in the day. Let's do another one. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is what you call a massive paperweight. Um, who had these? TV consoles were all the rage back in 1993. Yes, a lot of you did. We liked wood, I guess. 
Um, how much do you think a TV console would cost you back in 1993? They're a little higher, actually. Three, five. You can actually. I found. I found prices close closer to eight hundred dollars for a decent brand. Now it depends on the size of the tube, of course. But uh, yeah, they could cost anywhere from five to eight hundred dollars. Now let me ask you a question today. What would you pay for a TV console? Goose egg. Isn't it true that some of us might have one of these in our basement and we'd have to pay someone to haul it away? Yes. See how things change? Let's do another one. Oh, yeah. Now, the technology has changed quite a bit in 30 years. This is what a cell phone looked like in 1993. You had to take that antenna and run it across the street uh, to answer a phone call. What would you expect to pay for a cell phone in 1993? What do you think? A cellular mobile device. What do you think you'd expect to pay? Way more. Yeah, oh yeah, 400, 500, something like that. Because they were not commonplace. So that's what they call the Zach Morris edition right there. What would you pay for that cell phone today? That exact model today? A dollar. If you found that at a garage sale, you'd expect to pay 50 cents or a dollar, right? And what would be the purpose of owning such a thing? What is that? Paperweight. Okay, a lot of paperweights. All right. It's worth a paperweight. Let's do another one. Kids, you'll remember this. Actually, you won't if you're a kid, because that makes no sense. Adults, you'll remember this as kids. That is the original Nintendo Entertainment System. That was all the rage in the early 90s. What do you expect to pay for that in the early 90s? 200 bucks. 200. Actually, a little bit more. Closer to three. $300 when it came out. When it first came out, was what, that's a good guess, though. What would you pay for the regular Nintendo today? New or used? Um, that's a good question. Let's say used. Let's say used. I know, I know what you're going for. <laughs> what would you expect to pay for it? What would you pay for a used Nintendo Entertainment Center? Would you pay 20 bucks? No. 10? Five? Nothing? All right, you throw it away. How about this? You guys remember these? What's that? It's a fax machine. That was what we called email back in the day. <laughs> so if you got one of those membership forms and you wanted to send it to Pastor Todd, you'd have to send it to one of those guys and it would go through the wires and get to my door. How much would you pay for a fax machine in the early 90s, 1993? What do you think? They were expensive. Yes, hundreds. Probably upwards of four, five, six hundred dollars for a fax machine. Businesses had to have these. These were big time. What would you pay for a fax machine today? Does anyone still have a fax machine? Joel does. Okay, we got a couple. All right, later on, we're going to get something going on those fax machines. We'll be in a special little network of guys. What would you, I'm sorry, what did you pay for that back in the day? Or what would you pay for now? Nothing. Okay, just make it true. Nobody wants it today. Now, don't look at the kid. Look at the computer behind the kid. That's not me, by the way. Um, 1993, what would you pay for a computer that took up basically your whole table? For a computer, what do you think? Yeah, it was close to $1,000, absolutely. What would you pay for that exact computer today? And you're starting to see a point here, right? Five? Five? You pay $5 for that? What would you do with it? See if it works. <laughs> Just for the curiosity alone, it's worth $5. But what would you do after that? Throw it, out. Throw it away, okay. Because that's what it's worth. What is this here? What is this here today? Now, Bonnie, I don't know if she meant to say this or not, but she used the word answering machine in her little announcement. That's what this is. That's an answering machine. You guys remember those? We still have these. It's called voicemail today, but it's basically the same concept. What would you pay for an answering machine in the early 90s? Yeah, 
Yeah, fifty, sixty, hundred dollars. It depends on the model you get, the brand you get. But a hundred dollars. What does anyone have an actual answering machine today? Oh yeah, we still got some. Absolutely. Leave your name and message after the tone. Anyone get faked out by that? You think someone's on the phone and you start talking to them, only to realize you're talking to a machine. Answering machine today. Probably. What do you? What would you actually pay for an answering machine today? Twenty is fair. Twenty dollars, something like that. VCR. Who still has a VCR? Nice. Every, every day? All right. Who has home movies by the, by the truckload? Yeah. Yes, I know we do, Mom. VCR. What would you pay for the VCR back in 1993? Yeah. Someone said around 500. Those things were pricey. Now, you could get them cheaper than that, but when they first came out, everyone wanted a home Basically, a home theater by having a VCR. What would you pay for a VCR right now? Wow, with the combo, five bucks. Worth five bucks. Okay. They still sell them where? Walmart. They they are. No kidding. All right. Yeah, record players are popular now. So you know what happens? Sometimes you hang on to these. They come back around. And then, and then all of a sudden you were, you were, you were old and dusty and now you're hip because you simply hung on to it. And one more. What is this called? Camcorder. You guys remember holding this bad boy on your shoulder? Remember that? My dad, I think he has shoulder issues after that because we go on the, tr the trip to Florida and he'd be all with that thing. And just basically you just ran the tape dead. You had nine hours of a day that was totally boring, but it was recorded and what would you pay for a camcorder in the early 90s? Yeah, they were, they were expensive. Yep, around $700. That's a good guess. What would you pay for a camcorder today? Now, if you have the VCR to pair with it, you, you could do some retro-looking videos. You're seeing the point today, right? We're, we're, we're going to talk about something today that, that um, if we're not careful, we'll lose value right before our eyes. And so today we're going to talk about a passage from 1 John chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in verses 15 to 17. What have I encouraged you to do through the series of 1 John? Everybody's like, read it. You hear, that? you hear that tone? Thank you, Pastor. Who's actually read 1 John on a regular basis? Oh, that's, that's what I'd like to see. The numbers are going up. Well done, everybody. Read 1 John once a week. It takes about 15 to 20 minutes and it's going to be a blessing to your soul, I promise you. And uh, you will notice the context of where we're going. Our passage today is 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17. If you have your Bibles, follow along as I read these verses. John says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Amen. I've encouraged you as you read through a letter such as 1 John to always keep it in context. It helps you understand the intent of what the writer is saying, and so we want to do that today. If you remember last week, we talked about right and wrong love. And I just want us to be reminded of where John was while he was uh, writing up to this point. He said in verse 7 of 1 John 2, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment. 
that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. What was the commandment John was talking about? It's very simple. It's one word. Love. That's right. He has been describing to us what it means to love one another. And by doing so, he's had to show us a couple improper ways to love, and he's going to focus on that today so that he can remind us of how to properly love. So that's where we're going today. We have a simple outline that your notes will follow along with. We have three points we want to get to today if the Lord allows us. Number one is right and wrong love. We want to be reminded of the right version of how to love and be uh, warned not to love the wrong way. Number two, we will talk about the tragic pitfall that First John brings up. And number three, we will talk about how to avoid that tragic pitfall and live forever. Number one, let's talk about right and wrong love. And we did this a little bit last week. We kind of we kind of cheated a little bit and looked ahead to the passage that we were going to look at this week. So we did talk a little bit about this last week. So this might be a little bit of a reminder. <laughs> and last week I gave you a list of things that were right or wrong. And Bill, you set that up so perfectly last week. I just had to put the slide up there. I gave you a bunch of things that were right or wrong. And you guys gave me your answers. What did we conclude with the socks or sandals? Oh, yeah. I'm going to say big old right on that one. You know why? Because I saw someone in line at the, at the gas station with socks with sandals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think, I think I, now that I know two people that wear them, I think we're starting a trend. So socks with sandals, we were going to say right on the money for that one. But we're, our question today is what does actual, proper, biblical love look like? We don't want to guess at that. We want to know from God what that actually looked like. So notice what he says once again. Did you ever think you'd hear this phrase come out of the Bible? Do not love, John says. Do not love the world or the things in the world. Isn't that a strange thing to hear? Now, you might expect him to say something like this. Do not love sin. That would make sense. Or do not love evil. Do not love the devil, do not love anything like that. But that's not what he says. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. And I think sometimes that's kind of strange to hear if you don't dive into what that actually means. And the question today is, what is John referring to when he says, do not love the world? Now, is it wrong to be environment, environmentally friendly? Because that is all the rage today. Everything is green. People are talking about global warming and and the ozone layer, and how to protect the environment. Is that what John is referring to? I'm going to say no. I don't think that's what John is referring to. I don't think it's wrong to be good stewards of the planet that God has given us to live on. Now, of course, anything can be taken too far. So there, maybe there's a warning even in that. But I don't think that's what John was referring to today, that we should just act like the world is no big deal and litter and do whatever we want to it because it's bad to love the world. I don't think that's what he's referring to. And we will discuss that. In fact, it says in the Bible, and we've mentioned this already, in John 3.16, the most famous passage in the Word of God, it says, for God so loved the world. God so loved the world. In fact, he loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for us. Now, that's a lot of love to have for the world. And then it says in Ephesians 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. So if you make the, the conclusion here, we should love the world. I mean, that's a logical train to follow. If you look at the Bible, God loved the world. I'm to be imitators of God. I should love the world, to which you should say, yes, amen to that. But it's all about what you mean when you say the world. It all depends on what that phrase means. And we need to, we need to make a little distinction between what he is saying and what he's not saying, because he says, do not love the world 
or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, notice this, the love of the Father is not in him. Basically, if you love the world in the sense that John is referring to, then guess where God is? Not in your heart. Because he's not going to share. He's not going to share our heart, the throne of our heart, with anyone, specifically something that is against him. So that's what John is saying. Well, we did talk about this a little bit last week, so I'm going to kind of buzz ahead and give you the answer to this question. What is John referring to when he says, do not love the world? I believe there's a right love, and I believe there's a wrong love for the world. I think there's a right way to love the world, which God does, and God did, and God will for the remainder of our time here. But I also think there's a wrong love to the world. And I think what John is saying when he says, do not love the world, is do not long for and worship the world's system, glory, and possessions. Don't do that. That is wrong type of love for the world. I think that's where John is headed with his instruction to us today. Be careful of doing that. Because that is not how God has designed this, for us to fall so head over heels for the world that God is actually nudged away, pushed away from our hearts. And we are now giving our worship and our love and our glory to things that are much, much less value than our God. Number two, the right kind of love, I believe, is willing to give up our rights, our possessions, and our safety for the benefit of God's people. If that is the way you're loving the world, please keep doing it, because that is exactly what our Lord Jesus did. And that's how you know the difference between wrong and right love. Which one did Jesus do? Which one did Jesus do? Did he love and worship the world's system, glory, and possessions? Or did he give up his rights, possessions, and safety for the benefit of the people of the world? And typically, anything that there is that is good and right, there's also a forgery. There's a knockoff. And we need to be careful because the devil loves to sort of slip in those forgeries when we're not looking. And say, see, you're, you're all about love. You're all about loving the world. God loved the world. So you're, you're right on track with where God is. But if we're not careful, we're loving the world the wrong way. And John doesn't want us to fall into that pitfall. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And we get to verse 4, and he says this. He says, in their case, and he's referring to unbelievers here, or we could even say the world, because that's another way to refer to people who are unbelievers. He says, in their case, the God of this world. Now, notice it's lowercase, and it was lowercase in my Bible. The God of this world. Think about that phrase for a moment. The God of this world, lowercase. Who is he talking about? Yeah, he's talking about Satan. He's talking about the devil himself. Now, that's kind of a strange phrase to hear because, of course, God is the God of this world, right? God is the governor. God is the creator of all things. So, of course, you could say and be right by saying God, the God of the Bible, the God of the scriptures, our Lord Jesus is the God of this world. But when he says the God of this world, lowercase, he's referring to the one that sort of guides the world in an evil fashion, the one that is sort of making his mark here upon the world. He says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. Boy, isn't that true? Isn't that true in our society? That the unbelievers that live amongst us and work amongst us, their eyes are closed to the gospel. And the devil, the God of this world, has done that to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The devil is seeking to close people's eyes and keep them closed to the glory of the gospel and the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And how does he do such a thing? 
How is the devil so effective at closing people's eyes to the truth? Simply the world. He takes the thing that we are living upon and he highlights all the wonderful, beautiful things of this earth. And then he keeps in the background Christ and the Bible and church and acts like that's no big deal. And I think we live in a part of the world, a part of the country, where this is happening on a grand scale. The world is front and center. The things of this world is front and center, and God is somewhere off in the distant background. Maybe you guys have seen that with the cameras today. My BlackBerry doesn't really do that. But with the cameras today, they have like, a, it's called a portrait effect. Have you seen that? Where the image is in focus and everything else in the background is blurred. I think that's exactly what the devil is doing. He's highlighting all the things that this world can offer us, and he's blurring the truth so that we don't see it. And John wants us to be reminded today that there is a wrong love of the world. You have to understand this about the devil. He will trade you anything, anything for the Lord. He will let you serve and worship even. In fact, I think that's an advantage to the devil, for us to worship and serve and have religion as long as it's not the true Lord. I think that's an advantage to him. So he wants us to not just be apathetic or not a part of religion. He wants us to have the wrong religion. He wants us to put anything else at the center of our lives, and he's very good at doing that. And we're going to talk about some of his tactics today because I fell into this for many years, and maybe some of you did as well, where I was loving, I was worshiping, I was zealous for things that were not Jesus. I was giving my primary devotion and love to the world. I had fallen into the trap, and John does not want us to fall into that trap any longer. So he's going to remind us of the right love today, the wrong love. Here's some examples of wrong love. This is how you know you're having the wrong love for the world. Number one, we talked a little bit about it's idolatry. Idolatry is when you give your primary love, time, and worship to anything that is not the true God. And I mean anything. Did you know anything and anyone can become an idol? Even really good things, even really good people, if we put them too high upon the list and we nudge God away, they become an idol. That's a wrong love for the world, to take anything from this earth and to make it our chief love and focus. John would say, no, that's, that's a wrong love of the world. Number two is what I'm going to call bad investment. And we'll come back to this one. It's basically pursuing the wrong treasures which can never satisfy and will never last. And those lists that I shared with you at the beginning of things that were really valuable in the 90s, that if you had those things in the 90s, you're doing well. And people like you. And you got some self-glory for yourself. You got all those things on the list. But if you have those things on the list today... No big deal. Maybe you should even throw them away because they're not worth anything anymore. That's exactly what God and John wants us to remind us of today. That if we give our love to anything that is temporal, anything that cannot satisfy, if we give our love and our money and our time primarily to those things, that is wrong love for the world. And God does not want that to happen to us because we will lose our joy one day when those things are taken from us. Number three, of course, is sin. We'll talk about this one a little bit. It's following the pattern of this world, finding our joy from fleshly desires. That is not what God has called us to do, is falling in love with things that he says are evil. Number four is covetousness. Covetousness is basically living a life that is void of contentment in life with Jesus. And that one happens very quickly as well. You might think you're doing well, you're on the path, 
And suddenly you are being lured and you're chasing things that are not the Lord. And Jesus is sadly becoming the background of your life. Those are examples. And they might not be the only examples of wrong love, but I think they're the four prominent ones that John is bringing out. And you need to understand this, even though you probably can't see that up there. That looks really hard to see. It's 1 John 2, 16 says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. Do you know why? Do you know why he would never have you go after those things? Because they will harm us. And God would never let us do anything and chase anything that would be harmful for our souls. And there's a picture on the right side of a, of a little boy chasing a ball into the street. Now, that's a bad idea, isn't it? It's okay to have balls, just like it's okay to have some things of the world. But if the ball rolls into the street, would any parent who loved their children encourage them to go chase the ball? No. They would say the exact opposite. And in fact, my parents said it to me. I say to my kids... If the ball goes into the street, let it go, because it's not worth harming your life for that. And the Lord's telling us today that if you chase these things, if we chase these things, we will be harmed. And God does not want our harm. You have to understand that. He sent Jesus to die for us so that we would have eternal life and joy and happiness with him. Wrong and right love, we could talk about that a lot more, but we did talk about it a little bit last week. You have your scriptures, so you can dive even more into that. But we're now going to go to point number two, which is the tragic pitfall. Because John brings up a tragic pitfall. We're bringing up old things today. Maybe you guys remember this game. If you can really think back far, this is even before Nintendo. Does anyone remember this game? It was simply called? Frogger. No, <laughs> not Frogger. Frogger's where they're trying to get the frog across the street. This is actually called Pitfall. It was at a system called Atari. Anyone had Atari? Yeah. Pitfall, and the concept of Pitfall was quite simple. Don't fall into the pit. Very simple. There's a pit. Don't fall into it. You will die. Like this poor guy on the right side. I don't know what exactly happened there, but there's a pitfall. There's a pitfall in life, a tragic pitfall that John's going to bring up, and he's going to warn us of this pitfall because it's deadly. It's a deadly pitfall. If we fall into this pitfall, we might not be alive. And notice what he says in verse 16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. John says, watch out for the pitfall. If these things are the things that you are chasing, that we are chasing as people of God, then we need to be concerned. Because those things will harm us. They are designed to harm us. In fact, the devil has the complete opposite model than God does. God wants our eternal benefit and glory and joy, and the devil wants the complete opposite. He wants our eternal destruction. So he has to lure us into things that he know has the propensity to hurt us. So he's going to shine it up. He's going to put great packaging on it. It's going to look spectacular. The rest of the world's going to have fun doing it. And he's going to make us open that and love that and enjoy that. But at the end, it's going to blow up in our face because it's nothing that God has designed for us. Do you guys know what this is? Good job. It's a pendulum. Let's see if I can spell this right. Sometimes they will refer to this as a swinging pendulum, right? That's what a pendulum does. It goes back and forth. Maybe you guys have seen those little metal steel balls on someone's desk. You see that they go back and forth. I used to love those as kids. I had to play with them. 
Um, that's basically what a pendulum does. It's, it swings back and forth from one side to the other. Well, John's going to warn us today that there's two errors. And the propensity of mankind is to swing from one error to the next, back and forth, over and over. And we're going to talk about two errors that mankind has fallen into and can fall into, and he's going to warn us to stop the swinging pendulum today. Now, let me give you an example of a swinging pendulum. Take a look at those two pictures, okay? What's the difference in these two pictures? What is it? Low and high. Low and high. That's right. Now, I was born in a state called Michigan, and so were my siblings. And I lived there till I was age three. Mi Michigan is in the Midwest. Don't believe the hype. Uh, Midwest is a fine place, but it's not as beautiful as the place where we live. And until age three, we lived in Michigan. And at age three, we moved to another, even more flat part of the world called Iowa. Anyone been to Iowa? Yeah, I noticed you came back, too. <laughs> Um, and then what happened at age nine is my family moved, we didn't move exactly to New Hampshire, of course, but we moved to Pennsylvania, which is near the Pocono Mountains. And from ages nine to 28, I lived in the mountainous areas, and we spun the pendulum a little bit. Well, then at age 28, I moved back to the Midwest, to Michigan, to start my ministry, and I was there for six years with my family, living in the Midwest. And then at age 34, we went from Michigan back to Pennsylvania, until I was age 42, and then when I was 42 to now, we of course live in New Hampshire. So I've spent most of my life in this swinging pendulum kind of thing, going from flat to mountain, flat to mountain. And that gives you a concept for what John is bringing up here today. He says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, three things, the desires of the eyes, and we're going to talk about what these are, and pride of life, it's not from God, it's from the world. And he wants us to recognize that. Now, here's another illustration of this. I don't mean to harp on things and smear people, but the Amish, honestly, is a good example for this. The Amish are people that do all their best to avoid the things of this world because they don't want to fall into this tragic pitfall that John is bringing up. I believe that's the heart and the sentiment behind the Amish religion. But if you know anything about the Amish faith, is they have this thing called, let's see if I could say this correctly, Rumspringer? Has anyone heard of that before? It's basically a time where they allow their teenagers to go out and sow their wild oats and experience all the pleasures of the world that they haven't experienced up to this point. And their goal is for them to realize how shallow and vain those things are and for them to return back to the Amish faith. Now, does it happen? I have no idea. Once you get a taste for the world, you might just want to stay there. But this is a good example of that swinging pendulum, isn't it? Man-made rules, severe man-made rules, and over here on the other side, all the joys and pleasures of this world. Now, what am I talking about? Why am I bringing this up? Well, is anyone good at billiards or pool, as some call it? Anyone in this? A little bit, JP? Um, I am not good at billiards. Um, when I play billiards, I have one goal, get a ball in the hole. I don't even care if it's my ball. I don't care if it's the white ball. If I get a ball in the hole, I'm feeling good. Um, so I just like to hit it as hard as I can, but I've been told by people who actually know what they're doing, and maybe you understand this, is when you play pool, there are two goals. You want to hit your ball in, not your own ball, but you want to hit your partner's ball. No, they have that wrong, right? You want to hit your, see, I told you I'm bad. You want to hit your ball in the pocket, not your, not your partner's, but you want to hit your ball in the pocket, but you also want to set up your next shot. 
so that the little cue ball is in the position to hit in another ball so that you can just keep going on and on and on until all your balls are gone. Well, I think the devil is like a good billiards player. I think he's very good at getting balls in the hole. I think he's really good at helping us fall into traps. And if that's all it was and we realized that what he was doing and we came out of it, that would be great. It'd be like, oh, devil, you're sly, you're slippery, but I understand what you're doing and I'm not going to fall for it anymore. But the devil is also really good at setting up his next shot. And I'm going to prove that to you. And if you've had any experience with this like I have, you will understand exactly what I'm talking about. Now, growing up, and it was much more severe in the generations before mine, but my brothers and sisters also experienced this as well. It was a term we call legalism. Has anyone heard of this term before? Legalism. Legalism is described as man-made rules that seep into religion. And they kind of take over. And the real commandments of God, they get suppressed. The man-made rules come in. And we start acting as if those man-made rules are the will of God. And we start living by those man-made rules. And Amish is an extreme example of that. But growing up, we had our own list. And maybe you guys did as well, if you were in this at all. We grew up and Christians could not go to movies. I think it's because movies, you could watch something that wouldn't be good for your mind or heart. So the church said, don't go to movies. That's a bad thing. We also couldn't dance, which I noticed some of you were dancing during our music this morning. You wouldn't have done that in the early 90s and been okay with it. Um, dancing can lead to something bad. That was basically their rationale. Christians also don't drink and smoke. Because, again, drinking and smoking can lead to bad things, lead to worldly habits, lead to harming the body. And so what happened is these things kind of made their way into the church. And I remember people making a big stink over these things, how we couldn't do these things, and Christians don't do those things. But we kind of lost sight of the actual commandments of God. And we started to replace our commandments, our man-made commandments, with God's actual written commandments. And we started to act as if this was Christianity. Well, somewhere around my teenage years, people, probably like me, honestly, started to ask questions as if, why are we doing such a thing? Why can't we do these things, this list over here? And there were a lot more than that. And no one had a really good answer for it. Um, we just don't. They can lead to bad things. No one really had a good answer for me. And I started to dive into the Word of God, and I started to notice that the, the Word of God doesn't really handle these things. Now, of course, it does say don't get drunk. It does say that. That's an actual commandment of God. But this list over here, I started to challenge it with the Word of God, and I noticed they weren't in my Bible. And guess what people started to do? They started to take them away. Little by little, we started to fall out of love with legalism, and it became all of a sudden one of the biggest things we started to harp on and go, legalism is bad, look how wicked it is, look how wrong it is, look how, how much of a trap this is. But just because the devil is so good at what he does, he had already set up his next shot with the swinging pendulum. He knew that we would be so angry by this over here that we would run as far away from it as we possibly could to another cliff. And I believe he had set up that next shot for maybe years, maybe decades maybe longer than that. He knew that we would be so agitated by these man-made rules that we would do whatever we could to get as far away from them as possible. And guess what's as far away from legalism as possible? The world. Sort of our room springer. Where we say legalism is bad, legalism is not godly, and why can't we do all the things that the world does? 
We went from one side to the other. At least I did. I can't speak for your experience. I can only speak for mine, but this is exactly my testimony. I went from man-made rules to hardly any rules at all. And I was still a Christian. At least I called myself one. I was doing nearly almost everything the world did, but I was not following the Lord Jesus Christ because that's where Jesus is. He's in the middle. And instead of going from one pendulum to the other, we need to carefully navigate this path here by following Jesus Christ on the narrow road. But the devil, he's very crafty. John's bringing this up. He's bringing up this other trap, this other cliff that we could fall off. Now, what he's not doing is encouraging us to swing the pendulum back to legalism. That's not what John is doing. Saying, see how bad the world is. Go back to what you were doing before and make up as many rules as you can and live by those rules. That's not what John is doing because he wants us to carefully follow Jesus Christ. So what he's going to do now is he's going to describe, or we're going to describe, what John meant by these three things. The desires of the flesh. He says, this is not of the Father, but it is of the world. What does that mean, John? Well, it's quite easy to find this one. If you go to Galatians chapter 5, you can find Paul referring to the desires of the flesh. Now, he calls them the works of the flesh, but it's the same thing. Paul warns the Galatians, and John warns us of the works or the desires of the flesh, and Paul, unlike John, lists them. He gives us a whole big grand list of things that are dangerous and evil and crooked and against God. He says things such as sexual immorality. That is evil. That is not what God has for us. Impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness. There's drunk. Orgies and things like these. He says, I warned you as I warned you before that those who do such things, listen to this, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why, Paul? Because it's the wrong way. It's the wrong way. The works of the flesh, the desires of the flesh are not from the Father. They are from the world. Now, in our efforts to get away from legalism, we all, at least the category of people that I grew up in, started to sample of these things, going, well, we were following the wrong sets of rules. Maybe God wants us to just enjoy life and do whatever the world does and just have our sins forgiven and go to heaven. And so I started to sample of these things. Saying, therefore, there's no rules in Christianity. We can do whatever we want. And I found myself in a very, very big pit. A pit that I didn't even know how to get out of. Once I became in my mid-20s and I realized what I had fallen into, I didn't even know how to get out of this. I had fallen so far into the pit that I had no way to fix it. Now, thankfully, by God's strength and by God's mercy, he simply pulled me out of it and said, Todd, this is no longer the right way. I'm going to show you the right way, but you've gone from one cliff to the next by not being careful. John says the first thing we need to watch out are, are, are the desires or the works of the flesh. The do- desires of the flesh are basically whatever your body tells you to do. Whatever, you guys remember the phrase from the 60s, if it feels good, do it? It's basically that. If it feels good, it must be good. Do it. But is our body our God? No, and it's a bad God if it is. It's a really bad God. If you listen to your body all the time, that's a bad God. But the body wants to be satisfied and gratified, and John says, watch out for that, because that is not how God has designed this thing. 
to chase the desires of the body. To be chained to the flesh. And if you know what that's like, and I believe every single person who is here knows what that's like to go the wrong way by chasing all the pleasures of this world. It doesn't feel good at all once you realize what you're doing. It doesn't feel good to go wrong, does it? Now, I've told you before, I've actually gone wrong driving because I'm not good at directions, and I drove a half hour the wrong way one day. A half hour before I realized wrong interstate, and I had to turn around at the next exit. It felt miserable to go the wrong way because I was advancing, I was progressing in the wrong direction. And at age 26, when the Lord woke me up and said, Todd, wrong way, I felt miserable. It felt miserable to know that for years of my life, I had progressed in the wrong direction. Now, thankfully, by God's grace, he turned me around and set my eyes upon Jesus and upon his word. But John is warning us of this pitfall today, saying, be careful of the flesh. It is a chain. It is a deadly pitfall. And I don't want you to fall into it. Number two, he says, be careful the desires of the eyes. This might be a little bit different. The desires of the eyes, what exactly does that mean? In 1 Timothy 6, Paul is writing to his protege, Timothy. And notice what he says. He says, be careful, Timothy, those who desire to be rich. Notice his language. Fall into temptation, into a snare into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For those who desire to be rich, be careful, because there's a deadly trap right behind that. He said, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The desires of the eyes are simply all the attractions and the treasures of this world. They look great. The world's having a lot of fun doing them. They're having a lot of fun living for these things. And the Christians can look at that and be tempted by those things because they look so wonderful. They have so much joy. They offer so much happiness. And that list that I gave you at the beginning of our lesson, the little icebreaker about the things that you had to have in the early 90s, does anyone have to have those things now? No, because that's what happens with the world's treasures. They're the best. They're everything one day, and then you go 10, 20, 30 years later, and those things lose all their value. And John, and God primarily, is telling us today, that's not what I have for you. It's not what I want for you. I don't want you to have temporal treasures. I don't want you to have fleeting pleasures. I don't want you to have things that will eventually guide you away from the one who is the true treasure. And who is it? Jesus Christ. So he says, beware, be watchful of the desires of the eyes. Those things that attract your attention away from God, away from the church, away from the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's a deadly pitfall. You will eventually be very sad when you find out you chase the wrong things. Now, what is that a picture of? Can anyone tell? Both of you are right. It's called pyrite, or I like the term fool's gold. No one was uh, pulling any punches on that one, right? Fool's gold. It looks like gold. It has an allure of gold. There's gold on it. But if you actually spend hard-earned money for this, you're going to be very disappointed when you find out its value is very, very, very minimal. Because it's not real gold. And that's what the devil is doing. He's trading us. He's trading us real treasure with Jesus Christ 
for the treasure that he knows is one day going to spoil, fade, and go away. And he knows what he's doing, and he's very good at it. He simply wants us to trade something that is valuable for something that has no value. The last one is pride of life and possessions. Your translation might say pride of life, or it also say, might say pride of possessions. John, what are you talking about? If you have your Bibles, we're going to do one flip today. Take your Bibles and go to Luke 12. Because there's a parable that handles this. Luke chapter 12. It's a small parable, but it packs a punch. Luke 12, it's called the parable of the rich fool. It starts in verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Jesus is asked a question by someone in his crowd, and he fields this question with a parable. Luke 12, I'm going to start the reading at verse 13. It said, Now someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to a man, Who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store all my crops? And he said, I will do this. I will take down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Doesn't sound like a bad story, right? At first, going, man, the guy's really rich, really well off. But in verse 20, it says, But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Is God telling us it's wrong to have possessions? No, he's not. Is God telling us it's wrong to live in America where we're prosperous? No, he's not. What is he telling us to do? Guard your heart. Guard your heart. And be careful for what you're pursuing, what you're finding your joy and your pleasure from. Because if it's not Jesus, and you're just here to store up and make a great abundance of toys and pleasures and treasures here upon the earth, he says, be warned. One day your soul is going to be required. And all of that stuff that you pursued in your life, it's going to be handed to someone else that did not earn it. And you're going to lose it all. And the Lord, because he does not want us harmed, does not want us to face this scenario. He wants us to have real treasure that lasts and linger for all eternity. (laughs) I'm sorry, guys. I had to. I decided to Google bad trade. We live in Red Sox country. This is really a stingy thing to put up here. But does anyone know who that is? That's the babe. I think it was 1919. The Red Sox decided to trade or sell, I believe it was for money, Babe Ruth to who? Yeah, the Yankees. Did that, how did that go? The Yankees, the Yankees are still laughing, aren't they? Yeah, that's right. They call it, in fact, they called it the curse of the Bambino. It was such a bad trade that they believed it plagued the Red Sox for 80-some years before they won their next championship. It was the curse of the Bambino, maybe one of the worst trades of all time, at least in the sports world. The Lord 
does not want us to make a bad trade. It's that simple. And the devil wants us to make a very, very bad trade. In Matthew 6, Jesus, now speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, told his listeners this. He said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. There it is again. Treasures of the earth. Are they really that bad, Lord, to love the world, to have the treasures on the earth that you put us on? Is it really that bad? He says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Why? Where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. That's why. I don't want you to have treasures that one day will be taken from you. But instead, lay up treasures in heaven where moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal because they can't. God is securing it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Do you notice what he's saying? I don't want one day for the world to pass away because it is going to pass away and for all of your joy to go with it when you lose everything you own. If it's earthly only, if it's earthly primarily, and it doesn't have the will of God attached to it, you one day are going to be devastated. Just like the man who built bigger barns and kicked up his feet and said, let's eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus said to him, you fool, you're going to die tonight. And all the stuff that you live for, it's going away to somebody else. And I don't want that for you. I don't want that for anybody that I created. I don't want that for anyone that I love. I don't want you to lose your joy when all your treasures go away. we got to go quickly through this last one, but we will. But number three is how to avoid the tragic pitfall and live forever. We don't want to leave us hanging on something negative because John is going to help us remember the proper path today. He wants us to understand that legalism... Worldliness, sin, it's the wrong direction. It's the wrong direction. It always has been. It always will be. And if the devil helps us go that direction, we are going to be devastated when we fall off that cliff. I fell off and was in that pit for, for maybe, maybe 15, 20 years, and it felt miserable to realize that I had wasted such a large chunk of my life. But thankfully, by God's mercy, I came out of it. Some people might not come out. And he says, be warned that you go the wrong direction. In fact, we're going to be encouraged to go the right direction by following Christ and holiness and love. That's always been the right direction. It will always be the right direction. And John and God are guiding us that way today because he says this at the end of his passage in verse 17. The world and its desires pass away. That is true. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Do you notice that? What is the way to eternal life? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I have eternal life for you, but you've got to go my way. You have to follow me. I am the only one that can take you to this land of joy and happiness and security forevermore. You have to line up behind me and go the way that I say. I'm the only one that has the keys to eternal life, and that's what I want for you. I want you to have eternal life. So he says, the world is passing away. It's a truth. It's a reality. Along with its desires, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And this verse was actually my dad's favorite verse. That is the verse he reminded us more than any other verse. When I would ask him tough questions, Dad, should I do this? Dad, should I do that? Guess what he would say? Whoever does the will of God abides forever, Todd. Do the will of God, Todd. It was very simple, very straightforward, but it sunk into my brain. Do the will of God. 
Why, Dad? Why, God? Because the one who does the will of God abides forever. It's that simple. Lastly, before we close today, is how can I know the will of God for my life? The will of God sometimes sounds very mysterious, like, oh, what job should I take? And where should I move? And who should I marry? God, you're kind of concealing it right now. I can't really see it. It's like, a, it's like in the fog somewhere. And the will of God seems very mysterious to us sometimes. But it doesn't have to be. Because we have 66 books of divine revelation that reveal to us God's will. Let me give you four examples before we're done today. In John 6, 29, Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God, or you can replace that word work with will. This is the will of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Who is that? Well, of course, it's Jesus Christ. Believe in the one whom God has sent, and that is Jesus. And that those who do the will of God will, will abide forever. So if you want to abide forever, let's start right here. Believe in Jesus. Believe that he's not a man, not just a teacher. He is the son of God that came down from heaven to yield up his life, to spill his blood, to show us the way so that we could have eternal, abundant life. Let's start by believing in Jesus. That is the will of God. If you want to live forever, start with believing in Jesus. First Thessalonians 4, 3 says, For this is the will of God, very clear, very direct, your sanctification. Now that's a big doctrinal word, sanctification, that you may abstain from sexual immorality. But sanctification really just means become like Jesus. Don't just believe in him, but go the way he goes, think the way he thinks, do the things he says, don't do the things that he says don't do. Follow Jesus for the remainder of your life. And something profound is going to happen when you do that. You're going to start to look like him. You're going to start to think like him. You're going to start to act like him. You're going to start to become like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is that a wild thought? That we could start to look like Jesus simply by going the way that he's taught us? That one day when we get to the other side, we will look like Jesus, not physically. We will look like him in our character, in our actions, in our thoughts, in our loves, in our hates. We will start to look like Jesus. Yes, it's a tall mountain called sanctification, but simply by following Jesus, he will take us there. And the one who becomes like Jesus will live forever. Number three, Jesus says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's not legalism. The commandments of Jesus Christ are literally, actually what Jesus said, this is what I want from your life, do these things. And when we listen to Jesus and we obey his commandments, it's very clear that we belong to Jesus. Because who would obey Jesus unless you belong to Jesus? The world doesn't do that. Only Christians would do that. Only those who belong to Jesus would obey his commandments. So if you want to abide forever, believe in Jesus Follow Jesus and belong to Jesus. One, more, one last one. He says in Ephesians 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. How did Jesus defeat the devil? He did it with love. He came down and spilled his blood, had his body broken for our sins, and so he reminds us, if you want to live forever, beat Satan just like Jesus did by walking in love. Because Satan can't defeat love. He can't defeat it. Love has always beaten the devil. If you want to walk and follow Jesus, love. Love your neighbor. Love your God. Follow the pattern that God has set up for us by walking in love. 
And we're reminded of the greatest commandment of all time. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. It all boils down to love. If you want to abide forever, get on that ship and never leave. Never, ever step foot off of it. Love will always take you where God wants us to go. Now our theme for 1 John has been for his glory, for our benefit. This passage about a tragic pitfall that John is reminding us of does benefit both us and glorify God. When we love the Lord with our all, and that's really what John is calling us to, we keep God where he belongs, the highest and greatest of our lives. And that's what God deserves. Is that what God deserves from our life? Isn't that what Jesus himself deserves from our life, is that he would be highest and greatest, and first in all things. When we do that, God is glorified. And guess what else happens? When we love the Lord with our all, we will not tragically fall into the pit. We will not be devastated when the world passes away along with its desires. We will stand secure upon the rock of Jesus, and all our treasures will come with us. They'll never spoil, they'll never fade, they'll never rust. Thieves will never break in and steal them. The same thing that John is telling us glorifies God also benefits our soul. So if you want to avoid falling into the tragic pit, let us consider the worth, the eternal, unfading worth of the Lord Jesus Christ above anything and everything this world can offer. And I think it's okay to take all the treasures of this world and to stack them next to Jesus and see who wins. Who's more valuable? Would you rather have all the treasures of 2023, all the pleasures, all the gratifications that you could find in this world right now, or would you rather have him who has the keys to eternal life? And I think very easily you'll understand it's Jesus. Number two, don't look to anyone or anything else but Jesus until we reach our final prize. And we will. If we follow, if we stay on this course, if we avoid the tragic pitfall, we will one day end up exactly where we belong. And John's reminding us today that today is the day of salvation. If you heard the parable of the rich fool, he didn't have tomorrow. Tomorrow was not given to him. He had today. I cannot guarantee any of us that tomorrow is going to be available. That makes today the day of our salvation. If we are not saved, if we are not following, if we have not yielded our lives over to Jesus Christ, today is the day of our salvation. And I encourage you today, I implore you, follow Jesus today. Give your life to Jesus today. Trust in him today. Belong to him today. Because there's a tragic pitfall out of there, out, out there outside of us in this world. And I... I don't want to see any of us fall into that, and neither does God. And the only way to avoid that is set our eyes upon the one who is the treasure forevermore. And in that way, we avoid a tragic pitfall. So you're going to hear a lot about Jesus Christ at Crossroads Church. And the reason is because he's everything. He's the beginning. He's the end. He's the treasure now. He's the treasure forevermore. And I can't help but set our vision on the one who can help us in every possible aspect of our lives. My encouragement to you today is avoid the tragic pitfall, avoid the swinging pendulum, and set your eyes upon him who is forevermore. Would you bow and pray with me? Father, it's a long passage. It's a long thing to think through. It's a deep well of truth that we've discovered today. There's so many different things we could talk about. But Father, thank you for setting our eyes upon this, this pit 
this pitfall that the devil wants us to fall into, and many do, sadly. But Father, help us to avoid it simply by setting our vision where it needs to be, upon him who came to be our treasure forevermore. Father, may Jesus Christ be our one and only treasure from now until eternity, because he is the only one who can truly satisfy the soul. He is the only one who can never fade away. He is the only bright, shining star for the rest of eternity. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.